Today's episode is sponsored by Femex. We'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bully Esquire. Um, I'm joined today with Joe Rotes, the CEO and co-founder of Dragon Chain, which is a U.S.-based blockchain company based out of Seattle, at least for now. <laughs> um, I, uh, I thought I'd bring him on to talk about Dragon and sort of the, the 2017 ICO and um, what what they're up to now. So, Joe, thanks for thanks for joining me. I know it's early where you are, but I appreciate you jumping on. Oh yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great. Great. Yeah. And I will say, you know, for our listeners, um, this of course is not any sort of investment advice. We're just offering the following discussion, um, to, to let you guys know what's going on with Dragon Chain. So without further ado, Joe, um, I thought maybe we could, uh, just jump in and get some of your background. I know, you know, you're a seasoned software engineer and, you had a life before blockchain, like all of us. So just sort of curious, curious to hear about that and what your background is and what, what brought you to blockchain. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I actually have a, you know, quite a long, uh, history in software and doing all types of interesting, at least in my opinion, uh, integrations. And, uh, you know, I've, focused mostly on bigger systems on things that were, you know, challenging things that were hard to do, um, you know, scaling things, uh, improving security, modernizing, um, you know, bringing new tech in to uh, business. And I also had an entrepreneurial background, so I would tend to, to mesh those. And it was always really interesting. Um, did, did a lot of work, uh, in telco, um, a little bit in FinTech early days. And then, uh, did a lot of work for the feds, uh, DOD, DOJ, FBI. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they needed a lot of help modernizing things. And I had been, uh, involved in a few areas of tech that they became interested in and they, uh, they brought me out and, you know, uh, worked for Lockheed for quite a while in that capacity. Um, and that actually led somewhat in, into my, involvement in crypto actually so really were you uh were you out in dc um i was near dc we were virginia. actually stationed in we were actually stationed in uh west virginia okay and uh because there's a huge uh fbi facility there hmm. and um one way or another uh we ended up with uh a lot of work in that area that we that that how do I say I tended to focus on newer tech and trying to bring it in and, you know, trying to, I was the first person to bring open source software into the FBI. And it was a lot easier than everybody thought, but everyone, you know, everyone was telling me it's impossible to never go for this. I'll never do it. Um, and then later at Lockheed, 
uh, I was on the team that first got the approval to bring Linux into the FBI. And that was, you know, that was a multi-year gigantic effort, but you know, it was well worth it. Um, we did some really amazing things there. Sure. Yeah. At first people hear open source and they're like, Oh my God, I won't own it. But then you tell them it's free and they're like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it, it tends to be, it tends to be a much, much better, uh, you, you get much better results. The, the actual software produced in that capacity is far better than what you would tend to get from a proprietary, even a very expensive proprietary, uh, uh, you know, software uh, library or, or a system. So I tended to, you know, try to bring it in. And yet it, it was very philosophical because um, just like everything else, it depends on the context and where you put it. I mean, you wouldn't, um, you know, we, we tried to focus on commodity, like I say, I tried to push the fact that, look, if we focus on commodity hardware, don't buy multi-million dollar special hardware, because that's what they were doing everywhere. Um, don't buy, uh, you know, proprietary uh, software uh, OSs. Um, you know, go for uh, Linux and on top of, uh, you know, Intel-based or, or uh, x86 architecture so that it's very clean. You can turn on a dime. You can be very flexible. That's what they really needed. And that's not what, you know, of course, any of the vendors were giving them because there wasn't as much money to do that, right? But I, you know, my whole goal was to get to get the right system in place so that they could really do the things. You know, there's plenty of money to be made uh, building a good system, <laughs> and um, you know, if everything was focused on that. And when uh, when I left Lockheed and we ended up doing, a, you know, set up my own firm and we we ended up doing a lot of work for uh fbi uh, directly we and and dod um it, it was really interesting because i i pulled off a little research group that <clears throat> i could basically attract the best talent um where you know most of these guys were really amazing engineers uh with a really good long history but they they uh they were usually bored, right? Because a lot of, a lot of the stuff that's, that's going on, it tends to be boring every so often you get something that's fun to do or, or that uh, actually challenges the mind. Right. And so what I would tend to do is <clears throat> I would get these guys in that could uh, move mountains and I would attract them with, okay, we're going to, we're going to give you this because it's billable. You know, we can pay your salary, you know, you know, for your nice house and, and everything else. But, we we're going to challenge your mind over here. And we had this, uh, this group where we could actually do proofs of concept, prototypes, things like that. And we would pull in, you know, really new tech and, uh, you know, find the areas that overlapped with uh, the businesses and particularly the, uh, you know, the contracts and customers that we already had. And in that group, one of the guys brings in the, the Satoshi white paper, right? Mm -hmm. And this is, um, sometime 2010 and we're like, okay, I, I'll look at this, uh, over the weekend. Right. And so, uh, read it and, you know, everything in there was, was, uh, brilliant because the pieces were already well established. You know, every part of the technology was, uh, somewhat of a known entity yet the configuration, the structure of it was, uh, the magic. And that's, where, you know, really uh, it gained my interest immediately uh, because it, it seemed to have a few areas that we could use uh, 
you know, and, and the, the work we were doing there, there was no fintech there. You know, at least there was very little fintech. You might have stuff where they might want to track, you know, money moving, of course. Right. And that was, you know, one of the first obvious things that we could look at. But we started looking at every other aspect. You know, how can this be used to secure info to, you know, to track things you know, you know, how can we use uh, decentralization to handle various challenges that they already had? And we just started building anything we could. Um, and uh, it led to a lot of ideas. You know, I'm, I'm a, a software, I used to be a really good coder, right? And uh, that led to me realizing that most of the time we were coding stuff that was not uh, uh, well structured. So I became an architect mm -hmm. um, because uh, seemingly the biggest Every project that I'd ever been on was a lack of, uh, you know, good, uh, I don't want to say planning, but a, a, a good knowledgeable structure. Um, and so that became everything that I did. And uh, I, I ended up seeing all these pieces, you know, because you, you look, even back then we knew, um, uh, though you could at the time uh, send Bitcoin without a fee even, um, you know, and or very, very low fees. And it would, you know, usually still get in a block um, that it was obvious that it might not be scalable or it might, you know, it might have scaling challenges anyway. Um, on top of the fact with decentralization, you know, and we, uh, I would say a good portion of all of our design work and uh, coding and everything uh, at both, uh, you know, DOD contracts and FBI contracts uh, tended to have a huge um, sensitive information component, you know, either PII or, you know, you had to separate um, civilian from, I mean, there's a whole bunch of interesting little caveats you have to, um, th there were federal, you know, laws on re retention of, of the data and where it can be moved and everything else. And so uh, a lot of what I already knew was in that area. Now, you know, if you're actually trying to sell this tech to uh, the banks or to any of the, you know, proposed use cases for identity or for, uh, you know, I was a big name coin advocate at the time, right? Um, or for healthcare, that there is simply no way, um, you know, knowing what we know about cryptography, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a uh, cryptography expert uh, by any means, but I'm a pragmatist and I know that, you uh, if I put something sensitive on there, you know, even if it's moderately sensitive, I have a full, I have to have a full expectation that that information uh, will be obtainable by anyone who's holding this, you know, encrypted file. Um, so therefore it's a non-starter to say, I'm going to put that information on chain encrypted, right? Um, so there are all these problems and I have started building a lot of these uh, solutions and, you know, in, in my, uh, um, way of doing things, I call them abstractions. It's basically uh, here is a, a point in the technology or the structure of this uh, software um, that needs to have a, a moving part. It, it's something that, uh, you know, you could think of it as I need a configuration item there. I need something that uh, I, I don't know precisely what the value is. I'm going to take a guess, but I know that I'm not going to get it right. So I have to be able to change it. Um, and I started, and, and ten, those tend to be the, the structural, uh, the places where movement can happen between components and in a uh, software system. So 
I started building out a, a whole set of those um, for what is blockchain tech uh, on its own. And then I, you know, once I had, oh, you know, this, this vision of, you know, some base things to handle scalability, to handle fees, to handle um, uh, privacy and, and things like that, I started looking for a place to, to build them out. And uh, so I went through a couple, um, you know, we did do some contract work for Coinbase. Um, it, it was not, nothing very exciting though. It was basically SDK uh, development and it was, you know, on contract and it was just cool because, uh, you know, they were, they were paying in Bitcoin and it was Coinbase, right? Um, at the time, uh, very cool. But uh, nobody, nowhere I went, you know, went to a couple other startups as well. Um, nowhere I went though, uh, was I able to even come close to bringing this vision into fruition? It was uh, too, you know, it was too much. All of the startups focused, focused on very niche use cases. Um, you know, at uh, I, I was advisor at uh, Overstock um, when they were starting to do all of their their stuff there, and you know, then went over to um, Symbiont, and you know, it was all about bonds, right? And I, I know nothing about bonds, but you know. I was there to hopefully help them a little bit with uh, security and scaling on the traditional side. And, uh, you know, they were brilliant guys, all of them. So, um, uh, but, but nowhere I went, was it possible to really consider building out what I wanted to build? And, and uh, then Disney called and, and that's kind of what, what really made it possible because, you know, they, they have, they have every use case uh, under the sun that you can imagine. Um, and, you know, I'm not necessarily a, a fit for the company um, culturally, but, but, you know, it was a really good opportunity to throw these ideas up against the rocks and see, you know, what broke. So um, were you, when, when Disney approached you, were they like, Hey, come to our innovation team or like what sort of what capacity did you join Disney at and like how did you end up in the sort of blockchain side of things there? Um, it was, I mean, to be honest, it was uh, as a software architect, right? It was okay. We need, uh, we need someone who can help us with all the things, right? I mean, they, they literally have, uh, you know, tremendous amount of things moving on and, and it is, it's an interesting thing, both the good and bad of working there, um, that, you know, one of the big things is they are very open to innovation and are very flexible about how you can uh, build things there. You know, it doesn't have something formal like like Google does with a, you know, a Friday that you can work on anything you want or anything like that. But they do have the ability, you know, if you if you have an idea and you're, you know, it's uh, well placed that, you know, you you can get the time to actually build it out. And that's kind of where it started, because, you know, one of the one of the first guys uh, that I worked with there, um, he uh, he ran a team that runs uh, a bunch of their a bunch of their stuff in web for parks and uh you know, he, he, in the interview told me, well, you're not going to be working on Bitcoin here. Right. And that was, you know, funny. Um, and, uh, uh, when I, you know, when I went there and, and, uh, I immediately found people that wanted to figure out how can we use Bitcoin blockchain payments, etc. uh, there. And this was, you know, pre Ethereum, this was 2014 and, uh, joined up with them. 
started uh, networking and uh, building a small team. And we kind of hacked the system in, internally, uh, which it's, it's kind of built to be hacked um, for uh, how, how they do, you know, they do hackathons, you know, and they do hackathons for really very good reason. And they come up with some really amazing uh, tech out of those hackathons. You know, and mostly it's seen you know, a lot of integrations. Uh, you know, I'm going to make Slack work, work with X. Uh, there was a lot of that going on at the time, of course. Sure. And we would build teams. And of course, because blockchain is a very exciting technology, the teams would tend to get big. Um, and uh, some of them were, were temporary. They might be based upon a use case or based upon some project and some other business unit. Um, and we were, we were, you know, kind of staffed from all over the company. We had people from all the different uh, business units and well, companies even um, working on it and, uh, you know, various capacities, uh, some of them doing, you know, really significant pieces and some of them just kind of, you know, touching upon it and getting feedback on how we can use it. But uh, the great thing was that, you know, we started because I already had all these ideas in my head. We started the very philosophical uh, base set of goals, um, which were, you know, focused on, uh, uh, the protection of business data, the protection of uh, business logic. Um, and, uh, you know, in that you can include privacy and proprietary info and everything like that in there. Um, anything that an enterprise or you know, corporation would, would uh, definitely need, um, and then scalability, right. And then, you know, interop and a bunch of other pieces, but, um, you know, we went through that and uh, put things together, tested things out, and um, we ended up actually one of the really big drivers was uh, education. That they have a this huge worldwide educational system that uh, anybody can take part in, and there are always courses going on and, and things like that. And you know, I I would of course, and most people I knew would focus on the the tech things going on, and we offered up two courses, um, one of which was the business side capabilities, but, but very focused on capabilities instead of use cases. And then the technical uh, side, the, uh, you know, how blockchain works and precisely how our architecture on the Disney private blockchain platform worked. And those two courses became uh, the biggest courses uh, worldwide for all of their, uh, every, every bit of uh, curriculum they had um, online. And, you know, we would have, uh, you know, over a hundred people in those courses. Uh, you know, we did them once a month. Um, and it was really interesting because we would get people coming to us. And in my opinion, it was because we were hitting capabilities instead of use cases, instead of assuming that we knew uh, what you needed. Um, because typically we would get, if you, if you do that, in fact, even nowadays, sometimes when we talk to a, to a bank, even though uh, they tell us they're in a particular, uh, you know, here's what we do. You know, our, our part of uh, the bank's business is this. Um, it's really funny to me because the more, uh, uh, if they have a blockchain expert, as an example, they will tend to go towards tokenization or uh, valuation of assets and things like that when really a lot of times they don't actually need that. What they really should be looking at is uh, traceability or, uh, you know, compliance uh, things. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting because if, if people think that uh, we, we, you know, the, oh, you know, it's blockchain, so it's about tokenization, they'll come to us 
with that mindset. But if you instead uh, get them in front of the fact that this is a way to prove that something happened, you know, you can ignore whether that thing is an asset or has any value. It's literally did something happen between these two points in time uh, six months ago. Um, That that's a totally different thing. And you will get people that come to you and say, uh, hey, there might be a crazy idea. I don't know if I totally understand, but I think that means I could do this. And at Disney, that would happen constantly. And we never had a case where it was a stupid idea. Every single case, it was like, you you get it. This is exactly what you should be doing. Sure. And, um, you know, we did a lot of that. And it was, um, frankly, you know, something nobody ever asks me about. And I, I used to talk about it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of coming up right now that uh, it's a weird thing that, we, we kind of came to this realization that the technology is, it's a, it's a little bit, um, uh, it's not, it's not expected. It is, um, the fact that we would sometimes get somebody saying, uh, oh no, I don't want to use blockchain. It's, it's not a technical problem. And it was really weird because I had to, you know, talk to all of, you know, all of our people that were networking into these groups and say, well, when somebody says that, um, that's probably the key to say we really, really should talk to them because um, most of the time, yet you can have some things that blockchain can solve of technical problems, obviously. But the real clear ones to me are when you have human issues or you know issues with you know how do I get uh, this group or you know the, maybe even it's a um, a, a vendor to my group. Um, how do I incentivize them to do what is most efficient for my team? Right. And it could be your own team. It's, it's the human problems. And we found that those were the ones that were really exciting because you could, you could totally upend everything by plugging this tech in. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing you mentioned a few times and I'm curious to hear your take and maybe you'll talk more about it when you actually get into the functionality of Dragon Chain and the platform and things, but how how do you guys approach and how have you thought about over the years the privacy problem? This is something I think about a lot on blockchains and you know Bitcoin and most other blockchains are inherently transparent um, and that has its upsides. But you noted earlier when you get into sort of the enterprise context, privacy is a problem and it might even be a liability and it might even be illegal. <laughs> And, you know, the DOD example. So like, how do you guys sort of grapple and reconcile with the privacy issue versus like the accessibility transparency issue? Okay. That's, that's great. Um, So we think of everything as uh, state or um, proof of an event. Um, Like say, I, I will tend to, if you, if you get me into a long conversation about it, I'll, I'll tell you about um, the fact that the base the base uh, capability of blockchain is not value transfer. It's actually, um, uh, what the best word to use here is, but it's, uh, it's basically, basically uh, proof of time. It, it is, it is uh, the only reason that you can do uh, virtual asset value transfer is because you have a block with two points in time that have a bunch of events in between and in, in, in the middle. And those events, you can have an algorithmic um, way to determine the, which, which 
how you order those events, uh, if you're talking about uh, asset transfer and uh, double spend and things like that. But it all is possible because uh, you are putting it in a block and that block has the hash power applied. So it becomes exceedingly, uh, uh, pretty radically exceedingly impossible to go back in time and change the state. It's, yeah, it is possible. It's, it's linear, but, you know, right? <laughs> yes. And so uh, a lot of what we do has uh, uses that to track various things. And, you know, we have uh, uh, by design a hybrid blockchain network. And in fact, it's multiple blockchains all weaved together to, to scale the way we are. Um, but the interesting thing is that the privacy component uh, actually is, if you look at it architecturally, the privacy uh, requirement is not, um, is not misaligned with the scalability. That is, it's actually easier to scale something that is private, which is supposedly what Hyperledger did and uh, R3, you know, all, all of those groups that went straight to the banks. It's like, hey, we're going to take this tech straight to the banks because they need it. But what they missed was the actual power, the value of the, uh, the network of incentives to actually run nodes and do independent verification. So what we did is we drew a line down right down the middle and said on the one side, you shouldn't, you should be less blockchainy on the private side and you should be radically more blockchainy on the uh, decentralization side. Um, that uh, by doing that, what we're doing, we're saying that you have your own chain. So you're a business and uh, by default on our system, and this is an implementation thing, but by default, uh, your chain is completely private. It's as if it's hyperledger, but it's radically easier to build to. So it's, it's like you're building regular code on a traditional system. You can bring an intern in, you can bring a, um, a dev that's been uh, on staff for 20 years and they're gonna be able to use it and they're gonna understand everything about it. There aren't going to be any of the radically, in, well, they are interesting, but huge pitfalls that you get with a decentralized blockchain system where you have to worry about you know, the big um, and developing st still, we still don't know all of the potential attack vectors and uh, mistakes that can be made uh, in public blockchains, right? So much like what Satoshi did, you want to keep that side as deterministic and simple as possible, right? Um, whereas on the other side, your complexity, your actual establishment of, or integration with your traditional systems, um, the things that you do day in, day out in a, in a corporation, uh, in software should be controlled by you and should be, uh, you know, totally proprietary generally. Now, you know, we do have, you know, everything is flexible, of course. I mean, you can decentralize that just as well as you could any other system. But our point was that if we do this, I could take a telco system and I've worked on tons of telco systems. I know the amount, the, the high, high volume of data that flows through those systems. And I can scale a traditional system to handle it. Why we've, you know, we've done it many, many companies around the world have already done that, right? It's a ton of transactions, but you know, it's Linux, it's Unix, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's systems, they, they uh, become better over time, but we can already do that today. Um, and what we do is we marry that up where, uh, where we take that and, you know, and it, it tends to the scalability, but also the, the privacy of that data that we can store it here locally 
yet take a you know a proof of it you know we're talking about hashing you might talk about it uh you know doing various other things cryptography but we're we're decentralizing the proof and what what we did at disney um was very much from different uh verification from different business angles that is you know if i'm if i'm in enterprise architecture I want to know all of these, ideally, how the data is flowing so I can help improve the systems, help standardize different things. And what we were offering to them was the ability to say, anybody who implements this, not only will they have all these extra tools, but you will have some level of visibility uh, into those systems and not not at the business level because you don't frankly care about the business data that they're dealing with. Now, you can't care about it. It's The complexities are are too, too uh, enormous uh, when you consider all of the systems in enterprise. What you care about is a standardization of the, you know, the product protocol basically, or how, how that data is being verified. And you're also uh, bringing in the potential to do some level of governance. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, we built a validation uh, context. We built a, a uh, diversity context to make sure that the validators were diverse. It wasn't just the same, same uh, you know, buddies validating things that really shouldn't be validated. Um, and then we did notary, um, which is literally just, a, you know, I'm going to hash uh, this, this uh, payload. And so we ended up building these vertical chains. So if, you know, if you wanted to envision it, um, it is a let's say a single chain that looks like any other blockchain uh if you had it on a you know a block diagram on a whiteboard but every single one of those blocks gets verified vertically through another chain and all of those nodes that are doing the verification have their own chains um and in the end our last context which i was you know frankly surprised that we were able to convince disney to let us do it but we actually, uh, you know, tapped into Bitcoin and had our, you know, what we call level five verification, which is a public checkpoint at Bitcoin. And the point there uh, was that, uh, you know, we were, uh, we were in W3C and everyone was interested when we brought up this fact that, you know, one of the key differentiators for any blockchain system is the potential. It's not always absolute, but the potential to have a measurable proof of that data. That is with, you know, with Bitcoin alone, um, it typically doesn't matter in Bitcoin because it's, that's part of the system itself. But the fact that, um, <clears throat> that I can't go back and change some transaction from three years ago is because of the massive amount of power that I would have to apply to the network to make that possible. Um, and you know, it, it's, you can actually measure that energy in dollars and, you know, it might be an extrapolated estimate. Um, but it, you can actually put a number on it, which any other system, even if it's, uh, you know, proof that, okay, I'm, I'm going to get a, uh, a post, uh, I'm going to go get a seal a letter, go get a postmark, send it back to myself or send it to you. Um, it's great and it's, uh, acceptable, uh, in legal in the legal world uh, as proof or, you know, evidence anyway, but this is somewhat the same thing, but added to it an actual number that says it would, it would cost us uh, in the neighborhood or at least, uh, you know, $3 billion uh, to do that. Right. 
Um, so, and that became something really interesting. And we, you know, we threw that in at Disney and sorry, I, I kind of probably delved way too deep into that, but <laughs> no, this is why I asked. Um, I, I, you know, before I get too far, cause I, I have more questions about sort of the current state of you guys' enterprise solutions. But right. before I get to that, I am curious about sort of, okay, so you were at Disney, you decided to spit it out. You did this ICO in 2017. Can you sort of talk us through what happened in that year? Like what made you go out and just spin it out? Was it Disney that decided that? Was it you? How did the ICO go? I'm just sort of curious about that whole kind of year. Right. Um, so uh, again, W3C, we were getting a lot of inquiries from Microsoft, from IBM, from Hyperledger, from some of the banks that were in it. And uh, it was all about how are we doing this? Because every time we, you know, that uh, an issue came up, that is one of the typical issues that would come up uh, in a group like that. We always had um, an answer and it was very flexible, you know, I would, and it was very philosophical so I could talk about it openly, but whenever they would ask to see, well, how, how precisely are you doing it? You know, and I'm, I'm this guy that I, I live in that world where I think from the business, the architecture to the implementation. And I'm not anywhere near as fast as my glorious team that we have, um, but uh, anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, it, it's always this weird thing where any problem in software, and this is software itself, uh, shouldn't ever be looked at by an architect or designer it, uh, as, okay, this is the solution. It should, in my opinion, always come with at least 10 or 20 different possible implementations because in the real world, uh, you know, unless you're building a, a game or, or, or some, you know, toy uh, in a real world, you're never, ever going to succeed building the software if you only have one, you know, one way to build it. It's, you have to have so many contingencies because the, the, the world is so complex um, that, that's how I live. I mean, basically, uh, um, anything I'm, I'm seeking to build, I have to know, okay, we can do this, 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 then the next step we can do, you know, it's, it's a little bit like chess, but, but, uh, you know, maybe anyway, um, that I knew that we needed to be able to communicate this because that was some of the goal uh, that Disney had us on W3C4 was to, you know, contribute. And, so I proposed that we open source, right? And uh, I wasn't sure how it would be uh, received, but because we were by far, you know, the biggest thing that they ever, ever open sourced. Um, the the next biggest thing was probably something, there's a Pixar library that's uh, that was pretty well received in the world. Um, but this was a full on platform and, you know, there was a lot of complexity in it alone where, you know, I had to pull proprietary code out of it and, you know, experimental things that we had in there out of it and stuff like that before we open sourced it. But they, they, in the end accepted it. Um, you can actually go online and see the uh, whole process on DIN. Uh, there's a post about it and um, it was not a simple process, but we got it out and we open sourced in October, 2016. Um, so fast forward, you know, I'm running, uh, running it on the outside. I'm still working for them. And, you know, at some point I started talking to people and we're like, okay, we should commercialize it because being an open source project, it wasn't something that was very simple to deploy because it was a full network, right? If, if you had an enterprise, you couldn't just pull down, um, 
the software run a node and play with it because you kind of, you needed the other nodes to talk to. And, you know, at Disney, we had that. Uh, so we found that most of our difficulties getting people uh, to move forward with it uh, were the, you know, the, just the DevOps side. Um, so we decided, okay, let's, let's find a way to scale this for real business to make it uh, easier easier to uh, to deploy, easier to use things, things like this. And, um, you know, that led to us, okay, let's you know, look for funding. Most of the VCs weren't interested. They, they, in fact, it was really weird. Some of the VCs we talked to uh, considered the technology to be evil. And uh, it, it kind of blew my mind, um, but, but they thought it was immoral. Yeah. Um, I, I, at the time I, I, it, it, I, I really didn't understand. I've come to the realization that I think it is because, uh, they can sit, they, you know, they, they see bad press of course. And there, there are people who do, in my opinion, stupid things out there, uh, things that do not help the industry. Of course, and we've seen some of that recently, maybe, um, allegedly. Um, but, but the fact that, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think cause it was a huge, um, competitor to their world. You know, they're in VC and they were seeing people raising money in ways that were unreal to them. It's like, there's no way that you could go and raise money for that. And, and here's the thing, the thing that they were missing, in my opinion, it wasn't even that it was radically more exciting tech. Um, the thing that it had that other tech didn't was the universal uh, liberty, uh, basis that, that given the fact that it's you, it can be semi-anonymous, the fact that, um, anyone in the world can take part in that technology. And, you know, even for me, I was trying to, trying to figure out, wait, what, what is this thing? You know, philosophically, is it ownership in a company? Is it ownership in a network? I mean, how can I, how can I understand it when I'm trying to acquire more and more uh, Bitcoin or other tokens, right? And so there was a lot of that in there. And I think they probably had a lot of, you know, this this thought that's like, oh my gosh, that that is an existential threat to what I do as a rich guy, right? And, um, you know, how do I get more rich? And, and uh, you know, it's, it's something that it might look to someone, especially in those early days, like it, this is not real. This is a total... Um, you know, th this is, uh, you know, a, a bunch of scammers doing things and just raising tons of money really fast. Um, and in my opinion, though, it wasn't that. It was because that liberty component was there that anyone in the world could take part. It wasn't anymore just I'm a VC that serves my local region. I'm in the, you know, uh, Pacific Northwest. And so I, I might uh, entertain funding a company up here um, if one of my buddies tells me about it while I'm not playing golf, right? That's that's the typical world, at least as I see it. I'm probably, you know, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm conflating some things, but but either way, you know, it, it all anymore. You didn't have to be um, an American with a PhD living in Northern California to get funding, right? So all of a sudden, uh, even though it's it's uh, much radically smaller amounts of investment by individuals all of a sudden you opened the world up, right? And it's, in my opinion, what the SEC has missed too, because frankly, you know, and ever, anybody you bring this up with, you know, the accredited investor rules are hogwash. It's ridiculous. Um, and, 
And it's obvious as well that, you know, through some form of, uh, you know, friendship uh, networks and lobbying that those exist to limit that market. So, you know, it's, it's just the same as, you know, if you're, if you're Oracle and you want to hire an engineer, guess what? You want to, you want to kill the market price for an engineer. You want H2H, uh, 1B, uh, I don't want to get politics here, but it's the same thing. I'm going to affect my market so that I can, you know, and it's, it's what you do. It's, it's all, uh, you know, uh, bean counting and, and, uh, uh, you know, one way or another, that's part of it. And it's really interesting because, you know, that's lasted for long enough because there aren't enough people who, you know, could invest, but at least didn't consider that they could ever invest. But, you know, I, I lived in the U.S. since I was born and I had no possible chance of early investing in Google or Facebook, you know. And if you ask me, it's a travesty because there were probably much better products that would have been there if they would have been more open. I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and they all seem to have their problems. From a lack of volume to bad buggy UI or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle many transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books, and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, Femex, P-H-E-M-E-X dot com slash A slash bully. Again, Femex dot com slash A slash bully. Check it out. Yeah, but you can uh, you can go to you can go to the casino and gamble and you can buy a lottery ticket in the hopes that you get rich. But yeah, yes. you can't uh, you can't invest in early stage technology yep. companies. It's, yep. it's quite something. Yes. So and this was this was the first time that it was possible to just open it up. And it wasn't even, oh, we're going to decide to open this up and do it. It was, in my opinion, probably the better way to do it. It's Wild West, throw something out there, see what happens, right? And, you know, education, 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 you know, and in fact, I think it would should have been the responsibility of all of the projects at the time to, to make that the priority, you know, the, at least the ones that were legitimate. I mean, we, we knew that we were coming from a space that uh, normies would be interested in, or at least would get, right? It wasn't like a normie would understand, oh, Mist, a, uh, it's a it's a decentralized VPN. You know, to me, that's, right. and I don't even know where Mist is anymore, right? I couldn't get into to their token sale either because <laughs> because of the, the stuff back then. But, but um, the, you know, the, that a normie wouldn't understand what that is. You know, no interest, right? Um, they might understand something like BAT, right? Where it, this is this is something I use and ads on the internet that makes sense to me. And you know, for us coming from Disney and being an enterprise play, it was something that I, you know, we we could envision. And I guess particularly because we spent a whole year in open source land before we uh, did the token sale, that we saw we saw the people that came in day one that were lit, that were uh, genuinely interested in the technology, what we were building, why we were building it. And, and not all of them were technical. A lot of them were business people um, that, you know, wanted to understand the technology. And we were, uh, I guess, uh, uniquely approachable because we were polite. You know, all of our community was really well behaved. It was very, uh, very fun and interesting time. And uh, then we, then we commercialized and we knew it was going to change, right? Some of the culture, but we, 
largely have kept the culture the same. Um, uh, yet there are a lot of, you know, people who come in and still, still do things, you know, entirely speculative stuff and whatever else. But, but, uh, we set out very much to say, look, here's the technology, you know, let us, you know, explain it, you know, ask any questions, but by the way, crypto is involved, right? And if ever we decide we're going to do X, Y, Z, it's going to be a signed message from me or the, you know, the company itself from a known uh, address where you can verify that we really said this, right? Because we had constant um, attacks. We had a Slack, uh, public Slack uh, account at the time. And we would get people coming in and of course, impersonating me. And, and uh, even if we, Clamp, if we shut everything down on Slack, we went full on, uh, you know, paid enterprise level and everything, we still couldn't keep them out. And so, you know, we put that in, it was brilliant because uh, even in those really crazy early days when someone would, if you remember, someone would post, oh, you know, something, something, surprise, uh, token sale, you know, and they would put an address up there and they would get, you know, maybe 80 grand worth of Ethereum or, you know, things like that. Um, we had multiple people try that and we nobody ever lost a dime because somebody in the community would always say that's bs that's not joe uh joe would have signed that message right and it was really sure. amazing um so you know that's that's kind of how we rolled out and in, in the, the token sale itself i mean we <laughs> we had very clear visions of the technology and and uh for for technology's sake, I still will tell you that the value of what we had and what we have built is pretty amazing, in my opinion, as a software guy, because we started with a licensing model and the token sale itself. Um, you know, we went and we got we spent we spent a good amount of money on uh, really clear legal guidance focusing first on the uh, IP side of it on and on the licensing side of what this token was as a utility, right? That that was, that was the key thing to us before we could do anything else was to, to, to determine and define precisely what this token is, you know, what is its utility? And you called we, it like a, a micro license, right? Is that right. is that the phrase yeah. you guys use? Yeah, it's tokenized micro license, and we so the token would like basically allow the holder access to like a, a certain part of the license. Yeah. Is that the yeah? Idea? It would be yeah. It would be the same. Uh, I guess very similar to uh, and you know we we look at it historically that you know early licensing was far different than than what you have today, but it has progressed and it's progressed for. A variety of reasons um, uh, to make to make uh, both uh, deployment of software more efficient, but also to make uh, the the use of software more uh, appropriate to commodity resources. Right, that's what you have with AWS, with Google, with uh, with Azure. That you know, I'm I'm going in and I have an account and I'm paying for slices of CPU time and um, paying. Uh, a commodity basis for storage and for network and, and all this. And it's a really brilliant way to do it. Um, but, you know, we, uh, we wanted to model it because a lot of times uh, you, uh, you have complexity with subscription licenses and things like this, where you're paying whether you're using or not. And we wanted to, to flip that and say, well, when you use it, not on the, and there are multiple angles to this, but when you use the token, um, 
you are using a small balance of the token for every, like for every transaction you're putting out or every action you're taking. Um, but you know, the funny thing is that when you are, when you're doing that, you're actually getting a, um, cryptographic proof that that happened. So it's almost like you're, uh, signing a contract every single time you're, you know, transacting. And, um, so we plugged all those things in, we put a, you know, it's the U S so we put a provisional patent in, um, to protect ourselves from who knows what, because there was a lot of, uh, you know, scary stuff going on at the time. And that's since been, uh, approved as part of our interchain patent. Um, and you know, it, it, we put out, I, I should even talk about, it. it was interesting. There, there are good things that we, we did that we found. And, you know, some things I would have done differently knowing now, of course, uh, with the token sale, but, we very clearly said um, that we are not setting a market price because we saw all the token sales were going out and saying, okay, uh, the first people in, uh, you know, the team gets stuff free. First people get it for nickel, uh, next people for a dime, then a quarter and a 50 cents, then a buck. And what it does is it, you know, it, it does uh, put, it is FOMO because the first people who got it at the, the lower rates, obviously are going to push it to other people to buy it at a higher rate. Um, and then what happens as soon as the tokens were released, it goes on to a decentralized exchange and it dumps, right? And everybody's like, why does it dump? And it, you know, it's so obvious. And um, so we said, okay, we wanted to solve that. We also wanted to solve uh, the problem of, uh, you, you know, even scaling these token sales at the time, because, you know, they were all the rage, if you remember. Um, oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we, you know, we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to sell the token for a month, but what we're going to do is not set a price. We're going to say there is no market for it. So we don't know what the price is and we want it to be fair. And because there were a lot of normies, we also wanted it to, uh, be easy to get into. We didn't want it to be something where someone would lo lose uh, 10 grand trying to get uh, a transaction into a block that, you know, they didn't get crap like that. And, or that, you know, it sells out in, in uh, 20 minutes or in two blocks or, you know, all those things happened back then. So we're like, we're trying to protect ourselves against it, not knowing, um, you know, what would happen. You, you can't know. And so we instead said, okay, one month, we're going to take in whatever we, you know, in Bitcoin and Ethereum, Whatever people send in, we were pegging Ethereum to Bitcoin price uh, hourly on the Bitrix uh, 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 tickers. And so with that, at the end of the total sale, uh, it would be evaluated and you would know it precisely, uh, you know, knowing that this is a fixed supply of, uh, of tokens that uh, no, no matter how much we raised, everyone from the beginning to the end of the sale would get the same price. Um, and what did that do? That actually suppressed the price a little bit because, uh, you know, the incentive was for people to not tell their friends about it, uh, because they wanted more of the tokens. But when it went into a decentralized exchange that, uh, you know, we had no control over it. it actually happened while we were in the middle of distributing, um, that it, didn't try it didn't dump it it actually uh, raised and raised really quickly um and that was right also right when the you know bull market was going nuts so um it was a really interesting time <laughs> it's pretty scary too 
<laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Did uh, so I know you guys are listed on KuCoin. Were you affected by the hack? And I don't know if you can talk about this or what, but I just, you know, I saw KuCoin was hacked. I didn't know if you yeah. guys were affected. Um, there were, in fact, I, I saw a tweet where somebody said, Hey, is this, is this the team, Joe? Do you have anything to say about this? There's 23 million dragons that moved out of KuCoin. And, um, and it's like, well, uh, I mean, let me look. It's not, it's not us. Obviously we don't have, you know, team never has had any, any tokens on any exchange. Um, and, uh, that the, uh, what did I, uh, when I looked, it looked like, Oh, it looks like one of the KuCoin addresses, right? I've had people ask before. I'm like, Oh, I look and you have millions of dollars worth of every, every, uh, token un under the sun. And I say, Oh, that's, it's KuCoin moving their stuff between uh, wallets. Um, you know, and, then it, you know later you know found out oh it was somebody compromised their system and and I you know don't know details there, um, and uh, they have been in touch and you know we're trying to do whatever we can uh, about the situation, um, uh, but it, it's an interesting thing because you know I've had one person say that they lost uh, you know it's not even a large amount in dollars um, but you know uh, in the thousands of of dragons as part of that, but there's just supposedly will be compens compensated. And I, I hope, uh, KuCoin has no problems with their, you know, insurance and however they do that. Um, but the great thing about it that I can at least say is that, uh, you know, we created something, uh, that we now call time. Um, and it's not a token, but it is a score. Um, and it's interesting because, uh, if you remember when I bring this up, most people don't remember this, but there was something that, uh, that people call Bitcoin days destroyed, uh, back in the early days of Bitcoin. Um, occasionally it'll pop up again still, but it was basically a measure of when, when Bitcoins move, it was a measure of how long had that balance of Bitcoins been sitting in that wallet prior. Um, and the, the reason that they were looking at it is people were wondering, you know, will Satoshi ever move these, old mind coins, right? Are they lost? Are they, were they purposely thrown away? You know, nobody knows. Uh, we don't know if anybody knows. Um, so they were measuring it to, you know, that that would be an indicator that we have to be concerned for market price, right? And we took the flip side of that because I wanted to incentivize. And it was, again, part of that same thing for normies that when you tell a normie, you know, here's something and you can trade it and all this other stuff, they'll tend to leave it in an exchange, right? And we knew, especially back then, that you know, all of the exchanges were having these constant uh, attacks, uh, where a lot of sure. times they're inside jobs. Sometimes there's, sometimes it's a compromise in you know one of their systems. Um, but we wanted to say, oh, let's protect our users. And uh, and by the way, I mean, I've told this to the SEC, even it, you know, and I, I think they were kind of dumbfounded by it. Um, you know, they're like, oh, okay, this makes sense. But they'd never heard anything like this before. We were like, no, we're using this tech <laughs> to try to incentivize people to do what they should be doing anyway to protect them, you know, as much as we can. And um, beyond just the regular education, because you could, you know, you can, uh, 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 you can lead a horse to water, right? But, but the whole thing is with this incentive, it means that uh, people have a reason to take them off the exchange, right? And there's the number of good things about that, um, but it's in the end, it's philosophically about own your keys, own your coin, right? There's no way around it otherwise. If if the keys are on an or if the uh, the the coins are held by an exchange, you don't actually hold them. It's the same as if you have the paper uh, ownership of gold, right? I mean, is that real? 
you know, if it's not in your freaking safe, you don't really own that gold. Um, uh, because then when it matters, <laughs> it's going to suck. You aren't going to be able to get it. Right. Um, right. And so with this, we, you know, we, we created it at the time it was, uh, uh, dragon days of slumber and then it was uh dragon days of slumber score um ddss it was ddss for a long time but we realized when we're explaining this to people we had to explain another thing <laughs> so instead we just started calling it time and that was a part of our glorious rebrand if you remember the rebrand um sure. <laughs> it's often ignored that you guys didn't actually change anything and are like well, we rebranded <laughs> stuff uh, so anyway um so time though is uh, used within our network um, for a variety of things. The very first use uh, was uh, access to early, uh, you know, early tech. You know, when we'd roll something out, if you had, it was, a in my opinion, the best beta uh, uh, framework in the world for, you know, beta software release because we're basically saying for our most loyal customers, um, you have the opportunity to get into the early access stuff into you know, running stuff uh, before anybody else, which helps us obviously, because we get better tests and we get better testing from more loyal people, obviously. Um, but we also have a, a chart where we can say, okay, well, we want to open this to, you know, max uh, 500 users, but you know, we, we expect we'll probably get a hundred. Right. And so we can set, we could set at the time DSS uh, to that level and know that we would, you know, get, testers and we could expand it, but we could control it. And we didn't have to have anybody register. We didn't have to have anybody fill out a form or maintain any of that stuff. Um, it was brilliant. And it morphed though. We, you know, we added more and more uh, different things with what you can, what you can do with time. And the, the biggest thing, and I think possibly, you know, at least one of the most important things that we've done at Dragon Chain that still and I, I, I admit it, it is a bit abstract, but the crypto world doesn't understand it yet. Um, is a huge, uh, uh, it, it's the biggest impact on scalability that we have. And it's, it's an interesting thing because it's multiple dimensions of scalability that we use time to establish a fixed transaction fee. So basically the more time you have, the lower you're going to pay per transaction. And beyond that, we use a couple of other systems. We have a stable pricing system that makes sure that a, a business user that's paying 5,000 a month for, for nodes knows they're paying 5,000 a month for nodes. They don't care if it's 500 million dragons or, uh, you know, or 5 million dragons. They, they don't care about that. It's, it's $5,000. And, um, to them, it, that's important because it's a stable price. You don't have the issues you have with Ethereum, uh, as an example, or any other blockchain that, uh, you know, you have this decentralized economy and I have to now pay more because CryptoKitties came out this month or because uh, Uniswap has gone, has gone nuts. So now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm paying more. But even worse, out of nowhere, I'm not able to get my transactions on chain, right? This sucks. I have to now switch to a different, uh, blockchain, um, you know, and you see a lot of that now, right? You're going to EOS, going to uh, anyway. There, there are all these different um, angles that people are moving things around, and you know, we we did that uh, the stable pricing on that one side, but then you know, how do you then incentivize the the network uh, node runners, the verification nodes, um, and it was time as well that uh, we had this 
interesting problem because we were deployed hybrid, uh, you know, on-prem and cloud. And the theoretical concern was that anyone running a node in a cloud could simply drop their price below everyone else. And the fact that it was in a cloud, they would get all the work, right? And so you would end up with, uh, you know, two or three nodes uh, with a race to the bottom. Um, and at some point you'd have somebody that was willing to get a smaller margin than someone else. And you never have the number of nodes you need to actually do what the goal uh, is, which is to decentralize within our network and then it further other networks. Um, and so what, what, what uh, I did and I driving into work one day, I realized, Oh my God, we, we flip this and we don't put scarcity on the hardware or on the node itself. You know, the node can stay scale. You could have a, a single node virtually, but you know, it, it can handle you know the work of a thousand nodes. Um, so what we do instead is we, we put the scarcity on that time score itself. So the person that holds the dragons, more dragons longer is going to have a larger score. Um, cause you get one, one time unit per day per dragon in your wallet. Sure. And, that means that when we're doing what I described before, the the uh, verification on those on that vertical chain uh, in our in our uh, uh, platform, that every one of those nodes is competing for the transaction fees that that business put into that block. So if I put a you know if I put uh, ten thousand transactions in this one block, and each one of them is worth a dollar, you know, because I have no time at all, let's say. So they're very expensive that that block is worth 10 grand and the people that are running or businesses that are running those nodes that are verifying that block get a cut, you know, a a proportional amount of the fees for that block based upon how much time they have. And they're all competing. So it's a very clean, pure system. And, uh, you know, it allows us to get uh, in a, with the scarcity of that time, because the time is applied both on the business side and the verifier side. So um, they are competing against each other as well in a market. And uh, you know, the more, the more time you have, you know, our uh, lowest fees, we just adjusted all the fees uh, a couple months back and the lowest fee is 25, 10 millionths of a dollar. Um, and we, we think we can do even better than that because we have some, we have some scaling stuff coming up on the verification nodes where we can make them even cheaper to run. So there's a whole bunch of really cool stuff and that's all patented. It's all been, you know, accepted by a uh, U.S. patent office. I think it's also going into uh, you know, a couple of international, but it, that's about scalability in the end. That, that's sure. the most important piece. So, yeah. And that's all front and center right now with the Ethereum network congestion. I, mm-hmm. I, I love this idea of proof, I guess, proof of time, you'd call it sort of, you know, it was proof of work, then proof of stake. Now you have proof of time. I think, right. I think that's a really interesting um, way to scale a blockchain network. So, you know, I, I, I've sort of made you talk about the history a lot. Is there anything um, sort of what you guys are working on now you want to talk about in the last 10 minutes or so here? I don't, I want to make sure you're able to discuss what you want to chat about on this podcast. <laughs> I know, I, you, you know, that's why I, I talk so, uh, the, the, I talk so long about those things that I, I like to talk about anyway. <laughs> so, um, right. no, I mean, it's, I mean, the stuff we're working on, uh, it's hard to sum it all up. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. 
uh, obviously Eternal has just gotten a new facelift and it's... So can we can we talk about Eternal? I see sure. it on Twitter now and again and people will be like, make this post Eternal. So what what is it? Um, it's literally, you know, the uh, the simplest form and we, we put it out. Uh, we built that system in five days because we... We, we finally got a date when the patent office was going to release uh, our interchain patent where, you know, we have this, in my opinion, a holy grail patent on interoperability between blockchains. And so we wanted to push it. And so we, you know, we built this eternal system and it's something that I've been wanting forever, which is I can take uh, any text, you know, I could take anything, you know, and we do limit it because it's free and public. And so we don't let you put pictures up, but, philosophically you could um but uh, i can put anything on it and it will get very quickly you know within uh usually sometimes it's uh, 10 seconds but sometimes it's you know 30 seconds you'll get uh seven nodes on dragon that that all have verified it from different contexts but then the real magic happens when after that it ends up verified to ethereum and bitcoin and ethereum classic and then whatever else we're interchanging with uh at the time and the point of that is what I talked about early on, which is the measurable proof. So like on Twitter, instead of taking a screenshot, you know, cause I, I could take a screenshot and totally fake everything about it. You know, I can make Trump say whatever I want him to say. I can, you know, I make you say whatever, whatever I want you to say. Cause you know, you can Photoshop that and everybody knows it. And there are ways, there are ways to obviously uh, determine, you know, there, there's, there's enough, uh, you know, and you know, this, uh, in, you know, in, in the legal world that, that, uh, you know, you can tell when, when something has been faked, but right. to an average Chain user, custody, so. yeah. Yeah. And to an average user though, you know, if somebody tweets something that somebody said that is, you know, not, not joking, maybe it's something that they just changed some context in a tweet. And always, all of a sudden now everybody thinks this person actually said that. Right. Um, so what, what we do is we say, okay, we take the, uh, you know, with Twitter, we take the public um, data. It's all, it's there. You know, if there's a public API, you can pull uh, the content of a tweet and the images and everything else. And we store those, right? And we store them on Dragon Chain. Uh, they get verified really fast, but then they get the proof from Bitcoin and Ethereum, which, you know, uh, right now, based upon uh, current hash rates, well, at least a month ago, um, and, uh current best uh, practice, our best um, best of breed miner, I should say, um, that we tend to see about $250 million worth of proof uh, energy applied in the network's proof um, between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And so it's, you know, it's about $3 billion a year. Um, I think that's about right. Um, and, uh, or, uh, um, and, and, you know, one way or another, we end up with uh, this, on chain and it's a very simple system that anybody can use um and we did that on purpose to you know make it uh more social and and everything now twitter without telling us why i mean normally they they tell people in fact in the past it has the bot went down and they would say oh you just need to refresh this or you know we always thought it was because maybe uh too many people were were you know using it because there are limitations they you know they will throttle your use um and we sure. did see that but you know they would always tell us in this case they just shut it down they have not <laughs> told us why we've asked no response we don't know um but uh, oh, man, you know, don't get me started on twitter <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, they, and they did uh, <clears throat> the, the funny ones actually were uh we would tend when the bot would work it would take the tweet 
And in case it was deleted, it would quote, you know, the text of the tweet, and then there would be the eternal um, uh, re reply to that tweet. And it would be, you know, you clicked on it, it would go over to the eternal system, and you could see the original tweet, even if it had been deleted. And the funny thing was that um, it, uh, it got banned a couple of times, at least once because McAfee said something that was, uh, you know, vulgar. Um, I can't even remember what it was. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it quoted him. And so he, he got banned and it got banned. <laughs> it was really funny. So, um, but now we don't know why. So we're, you know, we're trying to get a mobile app out, but we have a lot of other things. There's, there's so many other projects going on um that you know like right you now you guys are <laughs> you guys are launching dragon den soon right too mm -hmm. or is right that in, live is that in beta it is in beta it is live anybody can come in and join um and it's actually even and that's like a decentralized reddit is that sort of the kind maybe of, i'm maybe butchering to look at it it's it's we tried what we try to do uh for the technology is um you imagine if everything that you post is on chain Right. So you can always prove it later. No, this is what I said. Um, you can't edit it. The edits are also on chain. Right. Um, and there is scarcity. So unlike Reddit, where, you know, um, in the old days uh, uh, when the Donald wasn't uh, I'll get politics here. That's OK. Um, when the Donald wasn't banned, um, you know, people go in there and just vote everything up. Right. And it's like, OK, you vote everything up. Um, there's no scarcity. Right. There's there's no point. And so the funny thing is, how does a system evaluate which of these posts is more valuable than the other if everything is one vote up? Um, and so we, we put a whole bunch of different interesting things there on scarcity, but we made sure that the scarcity does not kill the system. You don't have to come in and put tokens into play. You get something of, uh, you know, we have this energy component that it is uh, limits your activity early on in case you're, you know, in case you're just a troll or something, but but you can increase your uh, ability to do things by by doing good things. And uh, and it's not us evaluating what's good. It's individual communities. So, you know, the equivalent of subreddits. So I have uh, um, I, I have people in that community that, you know, they know based upon their culture, based upon the content and everything else, what is a good post. And we give them a point of scarcity that they can uh, influence that market much better. And the interesting thing is that uh, the content creator obviously is rewarded. I mean, this is the simplest piece, you know, the rewarded based upon uh, the quality of content as evaluated by the people in that community. The people that are evaluating um, are actually, whether they know it or not, participating in a market that will give them bonus, uh, you know, they will mine uh, tokens based upon uh, their uh, their choices, you know, based upon, you know, what things did you pull out? Did that turn out to be the same thing that the rest of the community thought? In which case, okay, it was, so you get more, um, you mine more. Um, and then those communities themselves are tokenized. And uh, uh, that's part of what's rolling out that there will be an NFT for ownership of each of those communities. And they're incentivized to develop a more vibrant, more active and a better uh, community with, you know, good content for everybody. And the crazy thing is all of this works together. And there's, there's a, obviously a lot more of that. There's really an interesting tech around how we do blocking. It's a very, uh, uh, it's pretty well tested by now, but it's a very organic system. It's very natural and it's very clean. And it's um, actually much better than what you see in a lot of other networks, uh, the ability to block that it's more than anything. Look, 
I don't want to outwardly say, you know, you know, go screw yourself. I'm blocking you. It's just, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear whatever you're talking about because I, you know, it's just annoying me or something else. And it's just gone now. Right. And we use that though. And it's a, there's a scarcity to it as well. You can only block so many people inside of a, a single layer community. Um, but if enough people in that layer block that person, they automatically get banned. It's even less work for the admins. You know, they don't have to follow through reports. I mean, there, there are all those things obviously we have to handle, but there's a bunch of really neat pieces and we're even, um, you know, it's an independent entity. So it, it has been kind of this thing we've been fostering and trying to test and uh, um, use as a, uh, a channel, you know, but, but it's interesting because we've, you know, we're, we're spinning it off. It's going to be an independent entity and it's going to have a really interesting model of governance that is, you know, much to the rest of everything we do, very hybrid where you have traditional components, you have a, you have an actual, you know, corporate board, obviously, but, but all changes on the system, like I say, algorithmic changes, feature uh, changes uh, have to go through a governance board that's appointed uh, you know, you have members appointed by the, uh, the, the corporate board, but then uh, you have a member appointed by the uh, the people who own the NFTs, the, which is lot uh, for the communities. That is, if I own, uh, you know, a few of these layers that I have votes to a representative on that board. Um, and then the people who hold matter, which is the, the final value token for content that, you know, as I, you know, we have energy and matter, right? So as I, um, as I build out uh, content, I'm rewarded with matter and that matter uh, can vote in a seat for this governance board. And it's not a, it's not corporate governance. It's very much, uh, you know, technical governance, but it's intended to avoid issues of, you know, the corporation making decisions that are bad for, for, you know, the, the users. So it's a kind of a, you know, uh, a middle ground on all that. And then we're, we're putting a DeFi component in as well to try to get people uh, to roll in to use, uh, you know, for, for what it's useful for um, in that market. But uh, you know, that's all rolling out. Uh, we don't have final dates. We're working on some of that, but there's some really, I mean, you know, it's really interesting to me. There's, there's some of the, some of the neatest stuff that uh, that's been going on is, is there. Yeah, man, you guys are staying busy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> probably way too busy, but yep. Well, that's all right. That's good. Um, any, yeah. Anything else you guys are working on? Um, we're doing a lot of on the, the more uh, traditional corporate sales side. Mm-hmm. We're, we're focusing a lot on, uh, reg tech, you know, that is, uh, proof of compliance. Uh, we've for a while, you know, worked on things where it, it would be, uh, uh, you know, let's say I have uh, CCPA or I have a GDPR and I, you know, I have to, uh, roll this in. Well, I'm going to go to lawyers. They're going to tell me what to do. Um, you know, it's going to be on paper. It's going to be as, as things have always been where, the uh, if you ask me, if you ask me, you you might have a different take on this, but that the regulators tend to work somehow very efficiently with the lawyers, right? And it's probably just a market thing, right? Um, there's an opportunity. Oh, new regulation. We focus on this. We just rake in the bucks, uh, getting GDPR rollouts, things like that. Um, but the problem, in my opinion, is that for the user or uh, well, even for the company, I think it's pretty radically inefficient, um, and 
if instead you take, okay, you still are going to need to have the lawyers. We don't know, you know, what the process is. Ideally, some enterprising lawyer should come along and say, hey, here's this process and it works in this state or works in this nation and, and just follow this to the letter. We're good. We codify that in smart contracts and um, in, uh, uh, you know, transactions, uh, you know, just ledger transactions on chain. And now you can have dashboard, a dashboard to show the company, the directors, you know, the, the, the CEO that in this system, because we care about um, making sure we don't get that GDPR fine or making sure whatever else, you know, I think Google or somebody else that I have a dashboard. I can see everything's green. I might have a couple of oranges and a couple of reds. Those are the things I focus on and I can go home at night knowing, okay, everything is handled as well as it can be. You know, the things that are, that are amiss are not uh, uh, without reason. And, um, and I can make sure, you know, abuse of the system, things like that. But the, the really important thing is when, when the auditor comes in and you can say, you can take any report, they can say, oh, I need to know, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of stuff uh, uh, right now too with like say AML, which is you know, pretty simple. But the fact that we can say, look, uh, I can immediately give you any set that you need with all the backing and proof that there's no way that what I'm showing you um, is uh, possibly false that I'm you know lying to you or giving you bad data or anything else that you can look for yourself and see, you know, see that we have followed the steps uh, to the letter of our process that's been evaluated by our legal and everything else. And, you know, the, the efficiency there, instead of, you know, sending it off to a bunch of accountants uh, to go through spreadsheets and build a report is huge, but uh, the liability is a big part of it too, because it's all, it's also the same thing. I mean, I, I've been on at least a, a couple of uh, cases as uh, a uh, an uh, expert, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, for some some interesting, well, really interesting cases, and it's always been as as an engineer, it blew my mind that these people would accept, you know, from their set adversary, you know, they're accepting. Uh, this data is gospel. And, and most of the time, every case I've been on, uh, you know, games were played. The games are always played uh, because there's lots of money involved. And so oh, yeah. even with the experts, know, I mean, I, I used to do some litigation yeah. and yeah, you hire the expert that's going to say what you want. Right. I mean, that's, that's why you yep. hire them. Yep. Yep. And so, and I was, you know, I wouldn't take cases. I was honest today, right. I wouldn't take cases where it was obvious that it's like, that. that's, you guys are, you know, you guys are the bad guys. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, <laughs> but but it, it was interesting because, you know, uh, it would usually be my uh, long history of knowing how software systems work that would that would be used. It was, you know, less, oh, I know about this tech is like, yeah, I know about that tech. But the important part is I know that this set of data that you're showing is not all the data. And the lawyer's like, oh, no, that's all the data. And it's like then you'd, you'd uh, you know, get in front of all the lawyers and talk to the engineer and drill down and, and say, well, wait. Uh, where, where's, where are these data points? Cause I know you can't run this system as it is without this other data. And the engineer would always, cause an engineer will always tell you about the system, um, that, uh, well, I say that in crypto, the first, uh, first I've ever seen that this was not true. Right. But, um, that the engineer will, that, you know, would say, oh yeah, there's, we have this other data <laughs> and, and everybody all of a sudden is like, oh, okay. And, um, everything changes. So with, with this type of tech, you know, and you think about it, because it, it can apply to compliance, but it, in my opinion, it applies to mundane data. You know, if you have a, 
a social network and you're banning people, let's say Twitter, you should bloody well be using this. And you aren't, right? And, and why is that? I don't know. There, there are other underlying things going on in some of those uh, networks that, you know, there are hints, but, um, you know, good and bad, uh, you know, or, or maybe passive and bad. But, uh, you know, if, if I were running Twitter, if I were running Facebook, and I knew that I had a potential for Congress to come in because I've been censoring people based upon political or social uh, um, classifications that, I would damn well be putting this in and, you know, your administrative process should fully have uh, a set. Here's the exact process and we can prove objectivity in all these cases. Right. And, sure. and there's a, there's a state there that's provable. So somebody can come back and say, Oh, you know what? I guess you're right. We maybe misread, you know, cause it's, it's English. Maybe we misread that. Let's open it back up. Just, you know, maybe you have to delete this, whatever else um, that that's understandable, but there's so many cases. I mean, I, I'm I'm a nobody, and I've been shadow banned uh, multiple times. You know, you think, damn, what the hell's going on? Mention China in any alt text on an image, um, and stuff shuts down for a little while. Um, it's really bizarre. So, yeah, no, and yeah. I suppose that that sort of compliance product goes back to this proof of time concept, right? Because that's what auditors really do at their core. It's they sort of track the movement of various information over time. Um, so yep. if you can automate that and you know ensure that it's verifiable via these blockchain databases you know that that's really something i think yes it's amazing and it's you know i'm i'm super proud of uh with the yeah, the team has built some amazing things and i'm actually kind of amazed that we've that we've uh you know gotten you know and it, it patents are patents people you know say stuff about patents but you know we're the little guy and uh we know that some of these big guys are gunning for us. Um, and you know, we've, we've dealt with some of them. Some of them are characters. Some of them are, some of them are good. Some of them are outright nasty. You know, we've had some people try to do some bad things uh, to us, but you know, we've survived. So, you know, we have a good community um, and the team's amazing. So, you know, awesome. we're just, we're just going to keep building stuff and, and uh, you know, wait for glory. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Hey Joe, this is, this has been really fun. And I, I apologize. Of course, I got, I went over my time. A lawyer always goes over their time, but <laughs> I appreciate you sitting down with me and, and chatting dragon chain and blockchain and politics. It's, it's been a fun, fun conversation. Yes. That's awesome. Thanks a bunch. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll have to have you back on eventually in a couple of years and you can let me know how, uh, how you've signed up every fortune 200 company in the country <laughs> right on right all right on. Joe. take care thanks hey everyone thanks for listening new episodes go live every wednesday at 7 a.m eastern links to our apple and spotify channels are in the show notes you can also follow me on twitter at bully esq to continue the conversation see you next week